are listening to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. In this episode, we will be sharing the audio from a previous webinar hosted as part of the iConnect webinar series. Each of these webinars has been delivered by a healthcare professional sharing their experience. Webinar recordings are available for viewing at www.ivtherapymadesimple.ca. Hi, my name is Angela Craig, and I am a critical care clinical nurse specialist for the ICU at Cookville Regional Medical Center in Cookville, Tennessee. I also chair the sepsis team there, and I do work with the Sepsis Alliance, and I have lectured extensively for numerous conferences and webinars on sepsis and hemodynamic topics. So that's just a little bit about me, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys today about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I have a few disclosures, but I do want to tell you today that nobody tells me what to say except for the evidence, so we don't have to worry about being impacted inappropriately. So a topic that is near and dear to my heart is why are we guessing when we don't have to? And we're going to talk today about fluid optimization strategies during these challenging times. And I think technology can help us out in some of these tough situations. So we have three objectives today. We want to look at the evidence-based research that is going to support our volume optimization strategies. We also want to discuss how we can make volume optimization part of a nurse-driven protocol. And we want to also review case studies for examples on how technology can be easily implemented. So we're going to get started by discussing evidence-based research to support volume optimization strategies. Traditional fluid monitoring has been shown to be inadequate for um, many of our patients. And when you think about a patient maybe who's losing a large amount of blood volume, you know, initially you may not see a change in their mean arterial pressure until they've lost like 25 to 30% of their blood volume. And that's just based on our body mechanics, right? So our body, our vasculature clamps down, we're able to try to maintain our blood pressure as long as we can. So if we're only looking at mean arterial pressure, we may very well miss the opportunity to see a rapid increase in our SVR or TPR and a rapid decrease in cardiac output that would show us that maybe there's something else going on. So when we're thinking about how much fluid to give, I like to use the analogy, the Goldilocks principle. And if you look down at our picture here, we really want not too little, not too much, but just the right amount, which would be our optimal fluid. We all know that if we have too little fluid for our patients, all the repercussions of that, and they're all listed there, renal failure, altered tissue perfusion, confusion, circulatory collapse, you can read the rest of those. And if we then have too much fluid, we can end up with ARDS in our patients, edema, delirium, abdominal hypertension, and the list goes on. So if we can find a way to give that optimal amount of fluid for each patient individually, that's what we want to do. Well, looking at the evidence, you're going to see that even with the 2016 guidelines, 
they mention here already to use dynamic resuscitation markers and it mentions a passive leg raise and target your mean of 65 millimeters of mercury and reassess hemodynamic status to guide resuscitation to normalize lactate. And I bring that up because we've been told since 2016 that that's the better way of determining fluid optimization is using dynamic parameters. So let's read the individual recommendations based on the 2016 surviving sepsis campaign recommendations. If the shock is not resolving, suggest dynamic over static variables be used to guide or predict fluid responsiveness where available. And then it also mentions suggests using dobutamine in patients who show evidence of persistent hypoperfusion despite adequate fluid loading and the use of phase suppressor agents. So basically we need a stroke volume measure. And so this is where it's at. We're able to individualize care to our patients when we're able to stroke volume optimize. So here's a study from the University of Kansas that shows before and after using bioreactants technology. And basically what they did was before and after, um, they looked at where their numbers were, and these are for the severe sepsis and septic shock patients. And they did fluid guided by stroke volume change versus usual care, which we're gonna call guessing. And I don't know about you, but at times at my hospital, I find people guessing and that's where, uh, we who know better can encourage better practice. When you have technology, let's use it to help guide each decision we make. So with stroke volume guidance, we found that there was less fluid given to those patients. A difference of 3.59 liters, which definitely was statistically significant. These patients also had shorter time on vasopressors, decreased ICU length of stay, and their mechanical ventilation needs were cut in half. Well, when you look also at these clinical outcomes, I'll show them to you in bar graphs. We've already discussed them, but when you can see it visually, I think it makes a difference. So clearly not guessing can make a difference in our patients' lives. Now let's look at the FRESH trial. This is a recently published trial and it had 13 US and UK hospitals. It was non-blinded randomized control trial and there were 124 patients as our N and we had 83 treatment versus 41 usual care. These patients were enrolled in the emergency room and they were chosen based on their um, definition of refractory septic shock. And these patients received less than three liters um, of fluid already being administered when they were enrolled. Now what they did was they did passive leg raises with dynamic measurements of their stroke volume and they looked at their stroke volume change using bioreactants. And they used this to guide the decision of fluid versus vasopressors for clinical hypoperfusion. And they looked at these patients over 72 hours of care or ICU discharge. Now they defined hypoperfusion as a mean arterial pressure less than 65, persistent hyperlactemia or cryptic shock where their lactate is greater than four without hypotension. So the primary endpoint of the FRESH trial showed that there was a decreased 72 hour fluid balance and our treatment group had less fluid balance than the control group. And so it does favor that treatment group. And what we found was 43% of patients were fluid responsive on initial PLR, 
33% were fluid responsive between 48 to 72 hours, and 18% of patients were never fluid responsive. So I think that's really important to know that not every patient is gonna be fluid responsive, and this once again is why we try to individualize the care and not just guess. We found some uh, exciting secondary endpoints with this study, and basically it showed that there was less renal replacement therapy in the treatment group, uh, shorter times of mechanical ventilation with the treatment group, as well as a decrease in length of stay, and um, more of the treatment group were discharged home. How I did this was we have a set of critical care standing orders. And so I'm gonna focus on the hemodynamic monitoring section. And basically we have it where when you come into our hospital, um, the nurses in the ICU, if they have a patient who's hemodynamically unstable and does not have an arterial line, we can go ahead and connect our non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. And this is really nice where we don't always have to go and get an order because not all of the providers are well-versed in the information that, um, that this can give us. So we do have an opportunity many times to train our providers as well. Now let's get to the good stuff. Let's review a case study together for examples on how technology can be easily implemented. And when I say easy, it really is not difficult to implement this technology. It does take a few more minutes, so sometimes people equate something that takes time to be difficult, but the reality is it's not hard to use. So here is our scenario. We have a 48-year-old male. He arrives from the emergency department to the ICU with septic shock. He has a diagnosis of UTI due to a blockage from a kidney stone, and they did go ahead and give him some Tylenol because he had a fever on arrival. Now his past medical history is that he has had heart failure. He does have an ejection fraction of only 35%. He is mechanically ventilated. His lactate and plug cultures have been drawn down in the emergency department. And he did go ahead re and receive his 30 mils per kg of fluid and he received his broad spectrum antibiotic in the emergency department. Now, here is our information that we received once the patient arrived. Blood pressure is 80 over 48 with a mean of 57. Temperature is up to 101 degrees or 38.3 degrees Celsius. Heart rate is 120 beats per minute. Lactate is up to 12. White blood cell count is 26,000. VUN is 20, creatinine 2.6, and our procalcitonin is five. So we decided to go ahead and connect hemodynamic monitoring non-invasively to this patient. And basically the thought behind that is how can we better optimize? This patient has already received 30 mil per kg of fluid. So we don't wanna give him too much, but we don't wanna not optimize and not give him enough either. So let's look at our numbers once he was connected. So we connected him to bioreactants and you can see our stroke volume is 38. Cardiac index 2.5, TPR 600, temperature 101, heart rate 120, and blood pressure still low with a 57 mean arterial pressure. So we are gonna do a passive leg raise on this patient. 
And when I say passive, basically that means we are going to do the work for the patient. We're not gonna let them lift their legs, we're gonna lift it for them. And you basically start by having your patient in a semi-recumbent position, and then we're gonna lay their head flat and we are gonna lift their legs up, okay? And that volume that's in their lower extremities will go back to their heart. And if we see a 10% increase in stroke volume, I'm going to make an assumption that that patient can tolerate volume. So now let's look at our numbers after we've done our passive leg raise. So notice our stroke volume went from 38 to 39. Now we use what's called the 10% rule. So if there is a 10% increase in stroke volume, it appears that that patient could tolerate fluid and I just tell my staff, use simple math, right? So if the number is 38 at baseline, then it would only need to increase by 3.8 or close to four points. And clearly it did not in this scenario. I've gone ahead and done the math for you. We only had a 2.6% increase. Now our cardiac index is pretty much the same, TPR not much different, temperatures the same, heart rate's not much changed, and mean arterial pressure is still low at 55 to 56. So let's take a second and think about this question. Based on our clinical findings, what should we consider next? So I hope you guys chose to start a vasopressor because that definitely is what needs to happen here. Based on our numbers, our stroke volume did not increase by 10% when we did the passive leg raise. So we know we're not gonna give more IV fluid. If you look at your TPR and your TP, um, excuse me, your TPR, um, pre-PLR and post-PLR, we're only at about 650. And our normals are around 800 to 1200 roughly. And so we're already a little bit dilated. So if I was to give an inotrope or a vasodilator, I will most likely further decrease my TPR, which will probably further decrease my mean arterial pressure. And we're trying to improve that. So the best choice here would be to start a vasopressor norepinephrine. Norepinephrine infusion was started at five mics and we increased that over the next hour to 20 mics per minute. So here's our pre-PLR information. We have a stroke volume that's 46, cardiac index of 2.1, TPR of 675, temperature has gone down after Tylenol, heart rate still 115, our mean arterial pressure is not where we want it to be, it's still only 60. So our question will be, is our patient still hypotensive or hypoperfused? And our answer is yes. You can see this patient's mean arterial pressure is still only 60. So what do we do? Let's do what's best for the patient, right? So we are going to give a, do a passive leg raise and we're gonna see what happens to our stroke volume. So another passive leg raise was performed to make sure the patient was not volume responsive now that that vasopressor was in place. So just because we have a vasopressor in place does not mean we just need to continually increase that vasopressor. The reality is 
this patient may very well become volume responsive once we get um, the other drugs lined up appropriately. So let's look at this. Let's look at all our numbers. So our pre-PLR was 46. Remember, I said it's a simple 10% calculation. So I would need this to increase by about 4.6 points, right? Well, you can see that I only went from 46 to 48. I've done the math for you. It's a 4.3% increase. So clearly not 10%. So right there, I rule out that I'm gonna give them any fluid. Now you can see the cardiac index went from 2.1 to two. My TPR has pretty much stayed the same. My temperature, we, um, it's, it's still right around 100. Heart rate's in the um, 110 to 115 mark. And my mean arterial pressure is still not where I want it to be as it's at 59 after the PLR. So let's pause for a moment and let's think about this. I'm gonna let you guys choose. Based on the clinical information presented, what should we consider next? Do we want to give, a, do we want to increase our norepinephrine? Do we want to add another vasopressor? Do we want to give dobutamine? Do we want to give more IV fluid or give a vasodilator? All right, I've given a few seconds. I hope you guys chose to give another vasopressor. So in our case, we decided to add vasopressin. Now, let's talk through why we don't want to increase norepinephrine. Sometimes, um, depending on where you're at and what your max dose is, we find that maybe adding another agent may actually help that patient respond better. Um, in this case, too, I don't want to give dobutamine. My index is um, only two, but we still are fairly dilated. Um, and I don't want to drop my pressure anymore as my pressure is already a mean arterial pressure of 59. Um, I'm not going to give IV fluids because clearly it's not indicated. I did not have a 10% increase in my stroke volume when I did my PLR. And I certainly am not going to give nitroglycerin because my patient um, it has a very low blood pressure already. So let's just discuss where we're at with our pressors. So we have norepinephrine and it's up to 20 mics per minute. Now we've added vasopressin, a set dose, 0.04 units per minute. Now our scenario continues that our pressors continued, our blood pressure did improve for the next hour, our mean arterial pressure was greater than 65 and our TPR improved. So notice the patient tightened up a bit. They're not as dilated and our lactate decreased to five from 12 previously. Now, after about an hour though, the cardiac index dropped to 1.9 and his stroke volume decreased. So let's look at our numbers. Stroke volume is now at 40. Cardiac index is now down to 1.9. TPR is 900. Temperature is much better at 99.4. Heart rate's down to 100. And our mean arterial pressure is holding at 66. So that second agent did help that patient maintain the mean arterial pressure. We want to make sure this patient has at least a 65 mean arterial pressure. So now it's time to do another passive leg raise. And basically we're gonna test once again to see now that we have two agents on board, 
is there any chance that this patient could need more volume? Um, and we wanna rule that out. So you can see another passive leg raise was performed to assess fluid responsiveness. And now the, and also we have two vasopressors in place and you can see pre-PLR is 40. So how much do we have to increase it by? If it's 10%, that's gonna be four points, but look, we're only at two points up 40 to 42. And I've done the math for you. That's only a 5% increase. Cardiac index is pretty much right at 1.9. We know we don't like to see our patient's index that low. Our TPR is holding steady around 900 to 925. Heart rate's holding steady at 100. And our mean arterial pressure is holding steady at 68. So based on our clinical information presented, what should we consider next? Are we gonna increase the norepinephrine? Add another vasopressor? Add a positive inotrope? give more IV fluid or give a vasodilator. I'm gonna pause for just a second so you can think about what the decision should be. I hope you all picked add an inotrope. Now let's talk through this. We don't need to increase our norepinephrine, right? Because our mean arterial pressure is where it needs to be. We don't need to add another vasopressor because our mean arterial pressure is where it needs to be. We are definitely not gonna give more IV fluid because we only had a 5% increase in our stroke volume after our passive leg raise. And we're not gonna give a vasodilator right now as if you think about it, we're closer to where we need to be. And this patient has a 1.9 cardiac index. So we need to add something to help this patient with contractility. So norepinephrine, vasopressin, endobutamine, are all going on this patient. As you can see, pre-inotrope, our stroke volume was 40 and it's gone up to 55 one hour post-obutamine start. Also, our cardiac index has increased from 1.9 to 2.5 in the one hour post-obutamine. So we're happy with those increases and it looks great. So we're literally gonna hold for a moment. Enjoy the moment. You have optimized, you've worked your tail off to optimize your patient. And now we're gonna pause and continue to monitor, but there's really nothing we need to do right at this moment based on these numbers. But of course, two hours after I started the dobutamine, the patient's blood pressure dropped and they dropped to a mean arterial pressure of 56. Our stroke volume also dropped from 55 to 50 mils per beat. So our current infusions is just a reminder, are norepinephrine at 30, vasopressin at 0.04 units per minute, and then dobutamine at five mics per kg per minute. And you can see um, what we're going to get ready to do, and we're gonna get ready to do a passive leg raise. Now, what you can also see is where we're at cardiac index wise, we're at 2.4, TPR is 824, so it's gone down just a little bit. Heart rate is, is coming up a bit, um, and our mean arterial pressure, as we discussed, is down to 56. So let's do that wonderful passive leg raise that we've talked about how many times. And let's just see if there's any chance that maybe the patient is volume responsive this time. So we did another passive leg raise to see if the patient was fluid responsive. And what you can see is that my patient's pre-PLR was 50. So it would need to go up by 
five, right? Good old simple math, 10%. And clearly it did. In fact, I've done the math for you and it's a 14% increase. Cardiac output went up a little bit with the volume as well. And you can see um, the TPR there. Now, patients, um, mean arterial pressure is a little bit lower than we want it as well. So what do we need to do? Based on that clinical information, what should we consider next? And I'm gonna give you just a few seconds to think about that. And I hope that you decided that we need to give some more IV fluid. Now remember, let's reevaluate or let's relook at this data. Our patient stroke volume when we did that passive leg raise went from 50 to 57. We had greater than a 10% increase in stroke volume. And since my patient has had that positive response and they have a low blood pressure, remember we always ask, are they hypotensive or hypoperfused? This patient clearly is. We are gonna give this patient some fluid. The beauty in a passive leg raise is you're able to see, are they going to respond? And if they are gonna respond and if they need it, just because they're a responder doesn't mean they need the fluid. Clearly in this case, this patient needs an intervention. We can't let them stay hypoperfused, right? So we are gonna go ahead and give this patient more fluid. Since this patient had a greater than 10% response to their passive leg raise with their stroke volume response, we went ahead and gave this patient a 500 milliliter of bolus. And after 500 mils of LR was administered, the new vital signs are listed. So you can see we went from 57 to 63. Cardiac index went from 2.7 to 2.9. Um, TPR from 925 to 950. Heart rate went down to 105. And look here, my mean arterial pressure is now 71. And that's really what we were working for. What did we need to do to bring up that mean arterial pressure? So good work, good decision-making. So now what do we do? And I'm gonna give you just a second to think about what do we do now? Well, I hope you all pick that we're gonna hold tight because this has been our goal to get this patient um, where we want them to be. But that doesn't mean in another hour, we're not gonna have to do another passive leg raise. So here is just an overview of all the interventions we did with that patient. And when we, inter um, when we intervened with what drug is listed out here, as well as how much fluid we had to give. And what I love about what we just did is we were very strategy based. We were very patient specific focused on if they needed volume or not. We were not just guessing and giving them unneeded fluid because the reality is there was only one time in that whole scenario where that patient was even um, even had a positive passive leg raise to where greater than 10% response, right? So this patient only needed a fluid intervention that one time. And I think that's something that we can all learn from. So some of my final thoughts regarding this scenario, stroke volume optimization can make a tremendous difference in how we care for our patients. Guessing or basing our next steps on heart rate and mean arterial pressure can lead us to the wrong direction. And also taking the time to evaluate patients' individual hemodynamic status can help us to individualize care and make the best choices. 
Now, what about our COVID patients? What about our renal patients? What about our heart failure patients? These are populations that really need our help, you guys. They tend to get fluid overloaded easily. So why don't we volume optimize the same way for all patients with needs? There is no reason we can't utilize our technology and I think even more importantly on this subtype of patient. So my thoughts are this. When I have patients where I need to know their afterload, I'm gonna think hemodynamic monitoring. When I have patients where I'm unsure of their fluid status, I'm gonna think hemodynamic monitoring. When I have patients where I'm unsure of their contractility or how well their cardiac output is, I'm thinking hemodynamic monitoring. So the reality is it's not just about if we're giving fluid or not, this helps us with so much more. I recently heard um, as I was rounding in my unit, somebody say, I said, maybe we should hook up some technology for hemodynamics. And they said, well, we're not gonna be given fluid anyway. And I realized that sometimes people just wanna associate passive leg raises just with fluid. But the reality is we're evaluating preload, afterload and contractility status on our patients. So in closing, I just wanna um, share a statement that was in one of Paul Merrick's um, articles that he wrote. It says, fundamentally, the only reason to give a patient a fluid challenge is to increase their stroke volume. If this does not happen, fluid administration serves no useful purpose and is likely to be harmful. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.